Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Meredith Broussard. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, April 30th. First off, I'd like to introduce my co-host for the next two weeks, Meredith Broussard. Meredith is a data journalism professor at New York University, where she studies the many ways artificial intelligence is seeping into our world, both good and bad, and how we can do a better job of explaining how AI works. She's the author of a book called Artificial on Intelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Meredith, I'm so glad that you're co-hosting with me this week. Thank you for joining. I am really excited to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, especially because you're just such a deep expert on so many of the issues we cover, especially today. On today's show, we're doing a deep dive on the tech industry's obsession with fixing public education. First, we'll talk about how Silicon Valley is snaking its way into classrooms with the hopes of saving public education with its spirit of entrepreneurial tech saviorism. Meredith, who happens to be a professor on much of this stuff, has some historical context on the decades-long urge amongst technologists to replace teachers with computers. And then we'll talk to New York Times tech reporter Nellie Bowles about Summit Learning, an education program funded by Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Dr. Priscilla Chan. We'll also talk to Tom Henning, a parent in Wellington, Kansas, who decided to pull his son out of a local public high school after Summit Learning was adopted in the school. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. A little over a week ago, Nellie Bowles at The New York Times, who we'll speak to momentarily, wrote a story about parents organizing in rural Kansas towns to end their school district's relationship with Summit Learning, a web-based curriculum that offers personalized lessons and keeps students in front of their laptops most of the day instead of in a classroom in front of a teacher or learning together with books and other students, like how I went to school. Teachers do offer mentoring with Summit, though. The program, which was built by Facebook engineers, is currently in about 380 schools across the country and being used by some 74,000 students. But many parents and students have cried foul, noting that being in front of a computer all day has been physically and emotionally and socially damaging. We'll dig much more into Summit shortly, but first, Meredith, I wanted to get some context from you. Because in my experience, you know, going to school and, and, and going to public school, K through 12, or actually I graduated early through 11, teachers were amazing. They were why I wanted to go to school. Uh, you know, my teachers, I think, saved me in so many ways. I can't imagine what would drive technology entrepreneurs to want to phase them out. Well, I think that the, the easy answer is that it's cheaper. Mm. People imagine that if they get rid of teachers and they replace teachers with machines, they'll be able to uh, save money in education. But I'm not convinced that this is actually a good idea because we've actually had this idea that, oh, we can replace teachers with machines since the 1960s. So if you go way back in educational history, uh, there is a mathematician named Seymour Papert mm. who started publishing uh, at least in the 60s. And he was BFFs with Mark Marvin Minsky, 
who is widely considered the father of artificial intelligence. And Papert, even though it was the pen and paper 60s, had this idea that computers were the wave of the future and that someday computers would replace teachers and using computers would allow students to have a more authentic educational experience. So this idea that's behind Summit is just a rehashing of a very, very old idea that has been tried multiple ways using multiple technologies and has failed every single time. Now, I will say that one of the useful things that Seymour Papert invented is he invented the logo programming language. Uh, so if you ever did logo programming with the little turtle right. and you kind of sent the turtle around the screen to uh, to make pictures, that was Papert. And that was actually really foundational in uh, in our understanding of how to teach kids computer science. Now, like having teachers, though, or, or replacing teachers with, with software where we can learn, that's not the same thing as the importance of teaching computer science. I mean, you know, we can have teachers and also have teachers teach about computers, right? And, and that's something that, that probably is needed in, in much more serious ways. Exactly. I mean, we have to break these things apart, right? Like we have to break apart the idea that we need better computer science education in schools and the idea that we need better general computing education in schools and we need better education overall. I mean, I would argue that one of the things that we need overall in schools is we need more money. We need to pay teachers more. Uh, we need to stop imagining that we can replace books with machines and we can just fully fund our schools so we can buy books. This money question is is interesting. I, I spoke to a group of middle schoolers recently and I asked them to raise their hand. I asked how many kids here have a Gmail address and they all raised their hand and uh, they said that they had to get one when, when they were like in kindergarten or first grade that it was required. Um, and they also had Chromebooks that they were using. So it seems that they uh, that that these tech companies have really been working to insert themselves very directly, very early on in in student lives. I think a lot of that is a plan for instilling brand loyalty, uh, because one of the things I see in college students is they have this enormous brand loyalty to Google. So if you try and suggest that the information you're getting on Google might not be the best information on the world. They just look at you like they don't believe you. So you have this idea called techno chauvinism that you write about, and it has to do with the kind of thinking that technology or that these tech companies can come in and 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 fix something that's wrong here. And can, can you kind of discuss how that has has worked in the education space? So it has mostly led to really high profile failures. So techno-chauvinism is the idea that technology is always the superior choice. And what I would argue instead is that we should think about using the right tool for the task. So if you're teaching literature in the classroom, you actually do really want a printed book. And you want the, each student to have the same edition of the book. So everybody can open to the same page and find the same line. And you can look at the words together and have a social experience and an educational experience around the text. And if you're teaching computer science, of course you want computers. Like there is actually a curriculum out there that teaches computer science without computers. And it's meant for schools that don't have enough money to have computer labs. And 
I'm all for having access, but it seems pretty futile to teach computer science without the kids being able to actually write programs on machines. So there are some things that machines are really good for and some things that machines are not so good for. And in education, it's really important to think about what are you doing and what are the methods that you're using to get there and what makes the most sense, especially what makes the most sense for the people in the room, considering you know, the kids' different learning styles or the kids' differing abilities or the kids' different educational levels. Okay, well, I think this actually primes us really nicely for the conversation we're about to have with Nellie Bowles and Tom Henning about Summit Learning. Tom, just to recap, is a parent from Kansas who pulled his son out, and Nellie is a reporter at the New York Times who wrote about this recently. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now we'll be joined by Nellie Bowles, a tech reporter for The New York Times. She recently wrote a piece titled Silicon Valley Came to Kansas Schools That Started a Rebellion. Nellie Bowles, welcome to If Then. Thank you so much for having me. Also joining us is Tom Henning, a parent in Wellington, Kansas. He pulled his son Toby out of the local public high school where Summit Learning was in full swing. He's met with other parents over the past few years to discuss their concerns and to organize to try to restore more human-centered education in their schools. Welcome, Tom Henning. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, you live in a small town in Kansas and you run a machine shop and you took the dramatic step of pulling your kid out of his school. I'm assuming in the middle of the school year because they were using Summit Learning. Uh, Can you tell us more about what led to that decision? Actually, he had approached me a couple months after the school year started and asked if he could transfer because he didn't like it. And, you know, I kind of told him, you know, you're going to have jobs in life that you're not going to like. Just stick with it, you know, tough it out. And it slowly, it started making him a little bit depressed. He'd come home just almost in a trance and different, you know, he, he was a kid that just would go to school year round, would just get up early and just be excited for school. And he asked me again, right around the middle of the year, Christmas break, if he could transfer. And I started really researching, uh, you know, what was going on. And, and the more I, I read about this and, and researched it, the uh, the more concerned I got. So we uh, we transferred him uh, about a month after they uh, came back from Christmas break. And so you're saying that there were that you were actually seeing physical and emotional effects that you attributed to him being on the computer all day. Uh, yes, and it, it, just a combination of being on the computer and the environment. Uh, there was kids crying in class and um, just a lot of depression involved with that program. Oh, that sounds terrible. Just a feeling of desperation, like they were never going to get caught up. They were so far behind. Um, they weren't always available to get the help that they were promised with the program. And... The teachers would remove them from the classrooms uh, to kind of 
get the remove them from the environment to try not to affect the other students. And so can you tell us a little bit about how you and the other parents banded together to find out more information about what was going on with Summit? Uh, it's kind of funny, but we're using uh, Facebook groups to fight a Facebook-funded program. So the McPherson School District actually had a group before we did. Their group uh, had a negative title like we felt it was parents against summit redesign a lot of us parents joined that group and then we were trying to win over the school board and so we come up with a positive uh facebook group called wellington parents for education and several of the parents would post to that group and we'd have our weekly meetings uh trying to get the board to to vote this out nelly maybe you can walk us through how summit has come to take over these kansas classrooms and other schools where it's used across the country yeah, well, Summit is now in um, several years deep into its pilot, and this year it's been expanded into its largest pilot yet. Um, over 70,000 students are on it. Some um, more than 350 schools are on it. And where they're really aiming often is at uh, underserved um, communities, so, so communities where the schools have been failing, and Kansas had had a tough few years with um, education funding being cut. And so the Kansas Board of Education wanted to do a sort of um, redesign program, Kansas Can, I think they called it, and it was it was meant to revitalize the school system. And so they chose a few schools to be the, quote, astronauts going for the moonshot redesigns. And Wellington and McPherson agreed to be part of that program. And, and, and by all accounts, a lot of folks were really excited about it. They, you know, a lot of parents got these brochures promising a redesign, project-based learning. Um, it was going to be the best tech, the best of, that Silicon Valley could create was coming to their town. And so people were pretty excited. Uh, are, is this in big cities or is it mostly small rural towns like in Kansas? It's a mix. I mean, um, I would say mostly small rural towns, but you see, you know, it's in Brooklyn where some students staged a protest a few months earlier. Um, so it's, it's all over. Um, but I would say it's, it tends to be in communities with schools that had been struggling. Kathy O'Neill has written a little bit about how uh, inequality is manifested in these computational systems. So uh, poorer students will be measured by algorithmic systems, whereas richer students will be measured by human systems. Is that something that we're seeing with Summit? Yeah, I think that's definitely something that we're seeing um, around the country with Summit and with a, with a lot of other tech platforms. Certainly the wealthy of Silicon Valley are not sending their kids to Summit Public Schools. Now, how does a program like Summit come to replace teachers? Is that an institutional decision or is it an economic decision? It's a little bit of both. It's um, that ultimately, if computers can have a huge place in a classroom, that makes running a school cheaper, right? Like you can um, watch Khan Academy videos instead of having to train up a math teacher to to teach that lesson really well. And then there's also, I mean, like to be fair, there's also a belief that if we have the technology to bring the very best teachers into a classroom in a small town in Kansas, shouldn't we do that? Like, if, if there is a video that is the clearest explanation of long division, shouldn't they just watch that? And so there, there's also kind of a philosophical debate. It's not just 
that it's cheaper is that some people really believe that that's a better way to do it. Summit is coming in as a as a free solution, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. not charging the school districts for uh, for using this technology. Is that correct? Exactly. Nellie, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was this kind of weird optimism about technology that I saw in your article. Uh, so I want to read a quote. Uh, it goes, there's people who don't want change. They like the schools the way they are, Diane Tavner, chief executive of Summit, said. The same people who don't like Summit have been the sort of vocal opposition to change throughout the process. So a number of the advocates that you quote uh, seem to be implying that technological change is inevitable and that in the future, all school would be online and the people who are saying, I don't want Summit are saying, I don't want the future and I don't want education. I mean, this is always the line that Silicon Valley uses, right? It's that if you're against what is being brought to you, it's just that you are um, wanting to live in the past or something. Like, this is, we've seen this play out in every technological revolution, every, in every attempt to um, have tech be deeper in our lives. To address that quote in particular, she said that the same parents who are protesting summit were the ones who never wanted in the beginning. And, and I found through my reporting that that just wasn't the case. Most of the parents who were leading the protest against summit now are the same people who were really excited about it in the beginning and, and who um, maybe even campaigned for it in the beginning. These are the people who are just sort of active and involved in their schools to begin with. And so those are the ones who, who now were leading the push against the program. I mean, another thing about that is that it implies that the people who are resisting Summit are somehow not engaged with technology, which I found kind of wacky because you can't actually have a kid in public school nowadays without having an email address. Like you can't enroll your kid in major administrative functions of life without being tech savvy. Like the tech revolution has already happened. There's a little bit of a lie that's peddled by Silicon Valley, which is that in order for you to understand the tech future, in order for you to become an engineer and uh, have a job in 10 years, you need to be on an iPad. You need to be on a computer right away. Like you need your, your, your six-year-old needs to be on an iPad so that she gets the skill set that she'll need when she's 25 and looking for a job. And it's just not really the case um, that it, it, most of the people building these products and the people really familiar with these tools and with that work, understand that tapping at an iPad or or doing a curriculum on a computer is not going to train you to be like a JavaScript coder. Tom, did you get the sense that your concerns weren't taken seriously? I I know I was reading in some past reporting that you had uh, concerns about the tremendous amount of data that was being collected on students. Can you tell us about your experience asking on that? Uh, Yeah, when I... I had originally asked uh, for our contract that we signed with Summit Learning, and I got sent a link to a generic Summit contract online that didn't list the 44 pieces of data that we chose to share with with Summit Learning. And I wouldn't have been aware of that other than the fact that someone in the McPherson School District was able to get a hold of their contract and post that. 
So I actually had to do a, a Kansas Open Records request to get the contract, and, and it was very difficult to get. But when I finally got it, I see that I, I believe uh, McPherson chose to share 42 pieces of sensitive information, and our school district chose to share 44, if I, I remember right. Uh, and, and some of the things that they even asked, we didn't share everything they asked for, and it's just absolutely horrifying the stuff that they would ask that they would need from a student. Were you able to request that less data be collected or that they somehow minimize or hand over what what they're collecting throughout the day when uh, kids are sitting at these computers? Uh, I read the summit contract multiple times, and it appeared that if you chose to de-identify your student and delete their personal information, that you would, in fact, still use the summit platform but your student would just be de-identified and just issued, you know, a number. So student 705 has these grades. And the school district actually told me if I chose to do that, that he could no longer use the summit platform. And his only alternatives were the GED program or to transfer him to another district. So your kid wasn't going to be allowed to go to school or wasn't going to be able to get grades in school unless he used summit? That's what they told me. Well, actually, they they did offer me a chance to put them in the GED program here. And so when you started to feel concerned about this, did you start talking to other parents? I mean, you said you started a, a Facebook group, but it, it seemed like you guys actually had to mount a bit of a campaign. I, I was reading in Nellie's report that there were signs made that people put in their front lawns. Yes, we started out, we, we held off on the signs. We really tried to show up in force at the school board meetings. There was maybe three meetings in a row that between 40 and 60 parents, I think we had 64 parents at one of the school board meetings and we were just trying to sway the board. We were just trying to tell them, you know, look at, talk to these kids that are uh, depressed and the kids that used to like school that don't like it anymore. And they just ignored us. So after we we were completely ignored for the uh, third straight meeting, um, the the parents, we were told that, you know, they were going to cut our speaking time and, and by the third meeting, they only allowed one parent a meeting to speak. Where it used to be, they would allow public comments. You know, if 10 parents wanted to speak, 10 parents could get up there and speak. So they kept taking away more and more of our, our the ability to speak out. So then we just kind of switched our attack to putting up signs and, and writing on front of buildings. Uh, just We kind of just took a negative approach against it. So Tom and Nellie, you've both seen the lessons that Summit presents. And what did you think of those lessons? Because my impression as a parent has always been that most of these computer-based instruction modules are actually worse than mediocre teaching or mediocre in-person teaching. Well, I'd like to use a good, uh, my son in his new school district, actually, since he transferred in the middle of the year, they're some of this stuff's overlapping, so maybe he's dumped into algebra a little bit ahead of where he was here, and he's he's he jumped into chemistry a little bit behind of where he was. Uh, so he he did an experiment. He came home and he and he was so excited to brag to all his friends that they did a chemistry experiment in one class period, did it in real life, you know, poured the chemicals together, measured the reaction, and it took them six weeks to get through the same project on Summit Learning. And Six some of the weeks? students, means it's learn at your own pace, still had not done finished the experiment. So they were asking him, you know, hey, what happens when, you know, what's the outcome of this? Wow. So Nellie, what was uh, what was your impression of the uh, of the summit platform or the lessons there? 
I think that there are, uh, from my reporting and talking to people, it seems that there are serious issues with the curriculum. You know, some parents showed me that in a lesson on the Ten Commandments, their kids were sent, you kind of click around, right? And and it sends you out into the open web, which is very unusual. But someone has decided to become a platform that sends kids out to the open web for resources to learn about basic things like the Ten Commandments. And so you go out and you go to a website that lists the Ten Commandments, and it turns out it's a Christian conversion website. So then if you click around on that, you're in like a obviously very political space. And these parents were pretty upset about it. So I met with these two moms in Newton, Kansas, who were showing me that. And I think that any time that you build a curriculum off the open web, you open a lot of potential for problems. And what about porn? <laughs> what about porn? Um, okay, so the uh, what happened was in a lesson on Paleolithic history, the students were directed for whatever reason. Again, this is an open web situation that seems insane to me, but you know, it's they were directed to a Daily Mail article for to read about something to do with Paleolithic history, and um, on the you know the sidebar of the Daily Mail it has like a lot of sort of spammy ads and stuff and like women in like lingerie and whatever, the, the, the children stumbled on that. So that, that, you know, like Summit then was alerted and then took down the link and, and Diane, the CEO, said it was a mistake. But she also said, listen, the Daily Mail's written at a very low Lexile level, very low reading level. We're always looking for um, resources written at a low level. So, so yeah, it was fair game. Nellie Bowles and Tom Henning, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having us on, guys. One final quick break, and then it's on to Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we've read on the web this week. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Meredith, what tab could you not close in your browser this week that you wanted to share with us? So I want to talk about a new book that is out this week called Wayfinding. It's by Maura O'Connor. And I found out about it because uh, she interviewed me for a New Yorker piece this week about self-driving cars and a proposed constitutional amendment to preserve the right to drive a car. But it's this fascinating book about how pathfinding and wayfinding makes us human. So she gets to the neuroscience of how we find our way in the world. And it's also a really good look at why paper maps are so enduring in the digital age. Now, obviously, uh, digital maps are hugely useful, but if you're doing something like climbing a mountain, you still take a paper map because it's really useful and you don't need to have a GPS signal to use it. I was just talking to my friend about this yesterday. I used to actually really pride myself at being able to find where I am on a map, a paper map, and then kind of help to navigate in the passenger seat uh, on whatever road trip I was on. But now uh, now I've kind of lost, I don't know if I've lost the skill, but it's something that I, I don't do anymore, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really wonderful, wasn't it? To be able to mm-hmm. take a paper map and kind of feel like you are learning a new place. 
That's interesting. Yeah, I feel like Google Maps has kind of infantilized us or it's given us this handholding that's really disorienting in terms of having a sense of place and and, and really learning about where we are when we get there. Uh, I'm excited for this book, actually. It's going to be really good. It's going to be really good. A sense of place is so important, isn't it? It makes you feel more at home and it makes you feel like you have a place in the world. Totally. And, you know, every place we visit is different and you have to learn about those differences. But when you don't get to learn about those differences because you have something mediating, telling you exactly how to get from point A to point B and, and you know, you don't have to look up to find where to turn or or get that direction from someone else or, or you know, find that landmark or that third red light, uh, you kind of forget where you are a little bit. So this is this is interesting. I, I was just talking about this recently with my friend and um, I'm sure it's something that other people have discussed, too, and, and have thought about. So. Great tab. Um, my tab this week is also about travel a little bit. <laughs> it's in the Wall Street Journal. It's about seasteading. Uh, you've heard of this concept before, right, Meredith? I am so fascinated by seasteading. I just I love the idea that people are going out and taking old shipping containers and like lashing them together, and they're imagining that they can just do this and make their own private island. It's hilarious to me. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's been happening for a long time. Uh, Peter Thiel has invested in its somewhat uh, infamous entrepreneur and also a Facebook board member. Uh, this article that I read this weekend is called A Libertarian Nirvana at Sea Runs into a Stubborn Opponent, the Thai Navy. And it is about a man named Chad and his girlfriend, uh, Suprani, and I I hope I pronounced that correctly. And they built a vessel that they cast out, uh, you know, some miles away from the Thai shore. And it had, you know, a full living accommodations and solar panels. But the Thai Royal Navy... uh, I guess took it over and and was uh, said that that they that this was kind of a hostile uh, vessel that was that was that hey, they had anchored into the waters and that they were afraid that they were starting a cult. Um, you know, this guy Chad and 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 his partner had made some money from Bitcoin quite early on, and we're actually uh, not investors in this, but we're hoping to start a movement uh, with other potential seasteaders that wanted to also kind of uh, cast out at sea. Um, He says specifically that this was kind of the closest he could imagine getting to uh, Anne Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, where kind of a secret enclave cut off from the rest of society is discussed. He said this in a YouTube video about their venture. Um, but it seems that it has been stopped by the Thai Navy. They were commandeered and uh, and the Thai Navy saw them kind of sitting out in their waters as hostile um, and not as a, kind of a separate free nation, separate from government control. <laughs> you know, it sounds like the Navy was quite reasonable in being concerned that they were a cult. Yeah, they did have a community of uh, of investors. They were hoping to build about 20 more seasteads, is, as they call them, which are these kind of uh, self-contained boats uh, or barges or whatever you want to think of them, where, where people can live isolated away from governments and away from society. And I mean, they do all share the same fundamental political ideology, which is that they want to be free from government control. And that they see governments, uh, just the idea of government at all, as as something that is an infringement on their basic rights. Uh, so, 
They were calling their boat the Exley. Uh, it was named after the Roman numerals XLII42, uh, which they say is the answer to the question of the universe uh, spelled out in Douglas Adams's book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh so they certainly do have texts that they're referencing. They certainly uh, do have a, a, a philosophy that they're pioneering and that they've gotten other people to join along with them. And this is just an example of it not working. So I recommend people read this article. <laughs> it was a f- uh, entertaining read, also a real head scratcher, and um, also something that's actually happening, that people are trying to do this. And I'm not sure that this is going to be the last time they try to do this, because it seems that there are people with a lot of money who want to make it work. So something I'm going to continue to follow for sure. And that actually does it for our show this week. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and Meredith on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Meredith is at Mayor Broussard. Thanks again to our guests, Tom Henning and Nellie Bowles. You can follow Nellie on Twitter at Nellie Bowles. And thank you to everyone who has left us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Gonady Joe Johnson, who engineered for us today at YR Media in Oakland. Okay, we'll see y'all next week. <laughs>